This is Barrett Edelstein from Celeb Savant, and today we are speaking to Greg Kane from Hue and Cry. Greg, where do we find you in the world? What are you up to? How's life going? And how things in your world? I'm coming. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me, first of all. But um, I'm coming from Pat and I's own studio in Glasgow, in Scotland, in the UK. Um, you find me good. Um, as I said to you in the pre-show, I've just upgraded all my computer systems, which um, sounds easy, but in practice, it's it's quite, it's quite tough. I'm now sort of trying to figure out. I think Apple computers give you a migration assistant, but I don't want half of the junk that's on the old thing. So I'm just going to do a clean install, but I need to find logins and passwords. I mean, ugh. My brother Pat uh, has gone on holiday for two weeks, so I left it up until now to do this. I should have maybe maybe booked a holiday myself, but there you go. So let's take it now all the way back to the beginning. Tell us about the Hue and Cry story. First of all, where does the name come from and your origins through the 80s and the whole story? Let's start from the beginning. Well, Hue and Cry are two brothers. Um, Pat, the older brother, sings. I'm the younger brother, Greg. I play all the music and produce all the records. Um, and well, there's three years between us. Um, so Pat and I were at the same school. I was always involved in music, played piano since I was nine, played saxophone since I was 13. But Pat was more sort of interested in theatre and musical theatre, and he was always in the um, theatre productions at school. And then I was in a band when I was 15, 16 years old, called The Winning Losers. And our singer left because he was a bit uh, disenchanted with the music business, even though we were still at school. So it was a bit of a prima donna of him. But anyway, I suggested that my older brother would step in. And the guys in the band were a bit kind of, what the guy that does all the musical theatre stuff? I said, yes, that's him. He went, well, we're supposed to be a punk band. I said, well, you know, Pat's, Pat's about as punk as you can get. So we tried them out and um, it worked really well. And those early demos of the winning losers, you're talking about 1981, 82, um, were played on local radio and got some traction. And then the band threw us out because they didn't like the way the music was going. And then Pat and I found ourselves on our own. But I think what had happened was the band had given us a platform to figure out how we could work together because we'd never really worked together musically. So in hindsight, um, the band throwing us out was a, probably the best thing for us. And we kind of used the band, not, wasn't the reason we joined the band, but in hindsight, when you think about it, the band were useful to us because as I said, they taught Pat and I how to work together. So we demoed all the way through 84, 85, and the local studio we were using at the time in Glasgow the guy who owned the studio, who was making the demos for us, one time he came in and he said, if you let me manage you, you don't have to pay for these demos. So at the time, Pat and I had to stump up £50 each to pay for these demos. So it was quite good to put £50 back in your pocket. And we went home, told yeah. my father, he said, you didn't sign anything, did you? And we said, no. And that manager, Alan McNeil, was our manager from 1985 until... 1992 and we never signed anything with him and we had an amazing working relationship so he was the guy that um, 
put our uh, recordings in front of people that maybe would be interested. And there's a very famous club in Glasgow called the Sub Club, um, celebrating its 35th year this year, actually. And it's about to be appointed uh, a cultural icon in Scotland, the Sub Club. People will know it's a big dance club. But the guy that ran it at the time was interested in Pat and I, and he did his own indie record label, and he put out a song called Here Comes Everybody in 1984. And it was, uh, it sold out its whole thousand run, there was only a thousand twelve inches made, and it started to get played on radio, and it started to feature on dance floors in, in London. And the two guys from Sucker Records came up to see us and figure out what it was all about. And they quite liked the dance record that we put out on this label. But when Pat and I started to sing piano vocal during the show and just do more kind of melancholy, kind of uh, introspective stuff, that's what got them interested. So these two guys had worked with uh, Bob Marley, U2, Island Records, that's where they came from. So all that sort of stuff was going on. And they'd left Island Records to form their own thing. And we were the first band that they signed. And then they went on to sign Massive Attack and Nana Cherry and all that sort of stuff. So that's basically as condensed as I can make it back. And tell me, where does the name Hue and Cry come from? Well, um, Pat, my older brother, who's the singer, is the kind of wordsmith um, between us. And he came home one day and said, I've got an idea for a name. And he said, Hue and Cry. And I was the same as you. What does that mean? And he said, well, it literally means a loud public commotion. So that's kind of what we hope to make. And there was the duality of the hue and cry. He was the cry, the voice, and I was the hue, the background. And there was a famous Ealing comedy called The Hue and Cry, and it's about brothers. And so it all seemed to fit. And um, nobody else had never heard the name before. So it's quite good to come up with a name of a band that's memorable and unique. So we were very lucky. Tell me, what is your music creation process is it still the same today as it was then how do you create music what is that flow how do we get to hear the end result um pat and i are big fans of the song so we big fans of uh, verse bridge chorus verse bridge chorus and um we'll go into a room with a piano with a blank sheet of paper from both of us and we won't leave the room until we've got a verse, a chorus, and a verse, and a chorus. We won't leave the room unless we can go leave the room, go to a, an open stage, and play the song we've just written. So we don't leave anything unfinished. Um, it will be further developed, but we can't really leave anything unfinished. It's always the way we've done it. And then back then, <clears throat> you just record it in a dictaphone, I guess, and I'd write down the chords. Um, Pat likes complex things. So I can't just sit down at a piano and play G, C and D. He'll just, they won't even look at me if I present them that. So it has to be a bit more uh, complex than that. So it was quite difficult for me to remember uh, what I was doing with these songs. Uh, and it still is sometimes I've got my own way of writing the chords down. Sometimes when I show my band, they say, Greg, let me see your music. And they just look at it like it's some kind of Greek or Egyptian hieroglyphics. They think, I don't understand a thing about that. But I have my own notation way of remembering the the way I'm voicing it uh, rather than just write it down. Uh, I can read music and I've always been able to read music, but for some reason, this way of me remembering chords has kind of evolved through the years. So put Pat and I in a room with a piano and either 15 minutes later or four hours later, we'll emerge with a completed song. So that's the way we do it. And then 
you know, it depends what we want to do with the song and then we can just get creative with how we want to produce it. So it's very collaborative and very start with a blank sheet of paper and, as I say, come out the room with something that's a song. Do, do you guys ever disagree about uh, what that end result's going to be? <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> um, Pat and I, um, it's a lot of it's about body language. Um, so if we're in the room, if I'm presenting him with a chord sequence and I can tell by his body language if it's good or not for him, <laughs> if I'm pushing a chord yeah. progression that I particularly think is good, if he doesn't engage with it after about a minute or a minute and a half, i.e. he doesn't change the melody to fit it, that's him saying to me, no, Greg, he won't stop me and say no. But I can tell from the way he reacts to what I play. And body language is very important for Pat and I. I mean, you need to be very, you need to be very careful um, when you're doing a, a writing, a writing pro process, when you're in the writing process with Pat and I, um, because it's very subtle, some of the things that we do to each other. Um, we don't write very well with other people because we don't have that intimacy and that has a lot to do with what we what we are and because we're brothers. And I guess a lot of the people that like our music and come to see us, um, mostly when we sit and play on our own, they celebrate and they love watching two brothers being very intimate. We're very lucky. The brothers are very, really yeah. intimate. My friends see their siblings at Christmas and at funerals and weddings. I see my brother every single weekend. And the what inspires your music lyrics? Is it personal experience, things that are happening around the world, combination of both? What are those words and how do they come from? I think it's a combination of both, but it's mostly our personal opinion of what's happening around us. I mean, the first big hit we had, Labour Love, uh, 1987, was... Um, we, it was all very political. We had a, a, a right-wing government that Scotland hadn't voted for, and the song was all about trying to come to terms with working-class people voting for a, a, a government that doesn't really care about them. All it cares about is big business and money and, and free market economy. And we couldn't understand why working-class people would vote for that, but they did. So the song was all about us trying to deal with understanding that. And then the other, looking for Linda, there's a song about domestic abuse. That Pat actually met the girl and she told him the story of what happened to her. So that's a personal experience, but how you feel personally about a, a more general topic. That's the kind of the way we write the songs. COVID, everyone was in lockdown. Everyone was shut down. How did you guys deal with COVID? What did you get to in your world? And uh, did you carry on creating music? What happened in your space? Well, uh, we had quite an interesting COVID. Um, I have um, older in-laws, parents, and a partner who was um, in the vulnerable in the vulnerable category. Pat's partner as well. So we were adhering to the the lockdowns and the isolations quite strictly because we couldn't afford anything to happen to these people that means so much to us. But um, just before. COVID hit, um, Pat and I finished writing um, about 18, 18 songs for a new record. So we were 
I said, well, I've got my studio here. I'm the only one that's here. It's not a commercial studio. It's just my place or Pat and I's place. So I'll just finish the record. I'll just do the record. The songs are all written. If I need you to sing, then we can do it somehow. But I've got all the guide vocals. I've got all the arrangements. So I had a plan and uh, I thought this is going to be great. But it didn't turn out that way, Barry. It turned out um, terrible for me creatively. I, we had all these songs and I could not figure out what to do with them. And I thought in isolate when I go and make music and produce music, it's usually in isolation. So I thought there would be no difference. But there was a huge difference mm -hmm. because um, without the socialising, um, not that I'm a big socialiser, but because I work on my own an awful lot, the, the times that I go out to meet friends and just experience social gatherings, I realised how important it was to me. So the whole isolation working on my own during COVID didn't work. And my management company and my brother were getting frustrated at me but I had to face up and say I don't know if it's a little bit of depression I don't know whether I don't know what's going on but I really cannot focus and we built a fantastic studio here I can do anything I want in this place but I didn't want to do anything yeah. so we um a lot of bands were doing online uh, YouTube performances and they were just trying to keep their fans engaged we went down a different route. We wanted to do concerts that you had to pay for. So we wanted to put online concerts behind a paywall. Now, everybody knows putting content behind a paywall is incredibly difficult. So yeah. um, we found a guy called um, Steve Mackin, and he's got a company called LiveFrom.Events. And Steve, his mantra is he loves to sell tickets. He'll sell raffle tickets. He'll sell gig tickets. He just loves tickets. That's his thing. I spoke to him. Okay. And he said, don't worry, Greg, we'll make this work. So we broadcast four concerts uh, on this platform and they were incredibly successful. We'd, um, I think, 900 to 1,000 people were logging in, paying £10 to come and see us. And they would, um, we, nothing ever went wrong. I got all the engineers to hardwire this whole place. And we had an incredible experience um, doing these concerts. They weren't like back to back. There was... We do one concert and wait three months and then do another concert, wait three months yeah. um, and did it that way. Um, but we were out touring, we're out gigging just now. Pat mentions from the stage that anybody see these online performances and there's quite a lot of people that shout, wave their hands, say yes. So our fans have always um, embraced a new technology, even though they're you know, mostly late 30s to late 50s. But Pat and I have always, even pre-Facebook, we've built, uh, online environments for Hue and Cry fans to come and just hang out, talk to Pat and I, interact with Pat and I. We had that way before Facebook, so we were always involved in that, but we'd never done a paywall before. It always been a sort of promotion type thing just to keep people engaged with what Pat and I do. But it was very successful for us. Um, and then uh, that meant Pat had to come up from London to Glasgow to the studio. That was quite difficult because uh, the first twice... I went down to get him and we drove up together in the car. It's a long drive. It's 400 miles there and back. Um, but I suppose in South yeah. Africa, it's nothing to you guys, is it? It's, it's like, a, no, that's not very far away at all. But for us, it is. But that was just to keep our bubble. And we kept our bubble when he was here. Um, and then went back down to London again. And we were totally testing all the way through it. So it was a mixed bag during covid Creatively, these concerts were fantastic. Creatively, trying to make a new record that we'd written before COVID was a nightmare for me. Um, and only now am I, that's why all these new computers have been bought to try and finish this record. But I mean, that was, I felt 
felt it was a wasted two years, but no, I just I couldn't do it. But I just didn't have the, the space to do it in my head. I didn't know what was wrong. And I watched other bands release records during COVID. I think Mogwai, the other Scottish band, they were quite successful. But then I watched Amy McDonald kind of not be successful with it. And I watched Delamitri, just friends of ours, not be successful with it. So it was a bit, in a way, I'm glad we didn't release the record. I didn't finish the record and release it during COVID. Because if you can't gig and tour and promote a record, it'll just disappear. It won't have any legs yep. you know what I mean so yes very frustrating generally but don't you think that even though it was frustrating that if you would have pushed through and tried to achieve it and try to go ignore that part of you saying no it wouldn't have been as authentic and organic and true to who you guys were because there was something there stopping you so naturally you had to listen to that yeah, I mean, I fought it so many times um, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and I spoke to a lot of people about it and they said, well, is it a writer's block? I said, no, I'll sit and write your song right now if you want. It was just, it was just getting, yeah, you can write as many songs as you want. And there's a whole, there's an old jazz adage which says you can play any song any way. So when you've got a song that's written, you're trying to create a vehicle for it. I make the record. And I've never had any problems with that. I mean, it's never, it's never been a bother for me. I love being creative and I love, um, you can be as odd as you want, but you've obviously got an eye on commercialism. You've got an eye on the, the, the platforms that this music will be consumed on, like radio and podcasts and, and clubs and stuff like that. You have to keep an eye on that. And then most of the, we do a lot of big festivals now, these 80s festivals, and there's 20,000 people out there in front of you in this huge stage. So you have to think about the song in that environment. How is it going to project? So I've got all these mechanisms and, and ways of doing it that have been done my whole career, but I couldn't seem to muster them and focus them. I didn't. I mean, I'm talking to you now and I'm thinking, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I just imagine these songs on a big, big stage and make them that way? So it wasn't really the writing of the songs. There's some great songs yes. in there. I'm so proud of it. It was the creating the record that was a problem it for me. You know, it, it was, was probably the energy block because everything was literally, figuratively and energetically shut down completely. So that energetically element or energy element is a way that you translate into the production. And because that was shut down, it affected you, which makes sense. It affected everyone in different ways. So it was just a way of accepting it acknowledging it and saying okay it's yeah let's just accept it feel it and then move beyond that yeah i mean pat and i are both big fans of prince and i've i've studied prince um quite deep and quite and quite a lot of detail um and he would go into the studio and not appear for weeks until he would appear with 1999 or like sign of the times or you know he would but i, I used to think well how can I, I can channel that energy of just shutting everything off my partner and my kids were prepared to go, right, just go and do what you need to do. But then again, when I tried that, a few days later, I would reappear going, I'm kind of missing everybody. I'm kind of, I'm a bit lonely, but I never, <laughs> I, I've suffered from loneliness in my life before. But it, there definitely was a yeah. big sense of loneliness. And um, But you're right, the energy yeah. not, is not, was not around me or surrounding me. I found it difficult to kind of do it. So, yeah, frustrating, as I say. So we are looking forward to hear the, hearing the new songs and new album come out. You must definitely keep us updated and posted. Yes. I'm definitely looking forward to that. 
Now, speaking of music, music was vinyl, cassettes, CDs. They are now coming back into the world. Those, those, you know, the aesthetics of holding something is coming back. But music is consumed more in the digital world on those platforms. What is your perception of these platforms and the way the listening audience is now interacting and engaging with music? It's an interesting question, but I've, I've got an 18 year old stepson. So he was 18 about two months ago. And he said, to his, he said his mom and I said to him, you know, what do you want for your 18th? And he said, a record player. I said, what, you mean a vinyl record player? Uh-huh. You haven't got any records. But I want a vinyl. Okay. <laughs> so we bought them. Nothing. Spent, spent 200 quid on a really nice one from, uh, I can't remember the name yeah. of it. And um, his mum and I went to a second-hand Oxfam store. The record store is a famous one in Byers Road in Glasgow. And we bought them the best of ABBA, the best of the Carpenters, you know, Bon Jovi. Yes. Uh, Hugh and Cry. I could give them some Hugh and Cry. And then Curiosity Killed the Cat, Go West, Elton John, um, Phil Collins, George Michael, all these classic 80s, 90s artists. And he absolutely loves it. He loves it. And... I'm thinking, and he's going to university this year, and I said, are you taking your record player with me? He says, oh, yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm scratching my head, because I don't, I've, <laughs> I used to frustrate my head, let me a record player, but he's 18 years old. And then I, I, I concur with what Jack Black was saying a few months ago, where he made the plea to the major record companies, please open your own pressing plants. Because every time an Adele record or an Ed Sheeran record comes out, they completely take over all the pleasant plants, nobody else can get their records pressed. Um, I do a lot of restoration work for like old soul record labels and they, they, they buy old soul recordings. They get, come to me, I digitize them, restore them, take all the crackles and all the crap out of them and then they re-release them. So they were, their lead time now is 10 months. It's 10 months. Oh, if I hand you a recording to a pressing plant and it's 10 months later I'll get my record. So. It's definitely really popular again. Um, I'm not in that space. My son is. My partner is. She's. We moved into our new home. She got the listening room sorted out with a pioneer turntable and our speakers. And really, and she stuck on the doors and told me to get out of the house and sat and listened to the doors. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so there must be some. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> For me, I, and I've got the Hue, I've got the Hue and Cry CDs. I've got them in my collection, and I love, I still love buying the CDs. I love that action of opening the booklets and you know having holding something, and I, I love that. And I, that's why when you were talking about your stepson wanting the vinyl, the record player, and him loving it, I, I got warm and fuzzy all over because I was like, yes, it's it's still there and it will carry on being there. <laughs> I mean, I think so. I mean, what the the news business model for bands is, you know, I was talking about Mogwai earlier on, the Scottish yes. band that I know quite well. Um, they had a number one record in the UK a few months back. And I said to Stuart, when I met him in the pub and I congratulated him, and I said, Stuart, if you don't mind me, how many records did you actually sell? And he said, uh, uh, 19,000. And I said, you know what? Labour Love was number six, didn't even get to number one. And it sold nearly 400,000. So I don't, it's, it's a completely different playing field now. But the, our mantra was always, if you can find a thousand fans that can spend a hundred pounds a year, then that's enough to make a living. 
and a hundred thousand years, maybe a couple of gigs, a T-shirt, or maybe a vinyl or a CD. You don't need hundreds of thousands and millions of fans to be a successful musician nowadays. So what they call it is you supersell your super fans and they'll be more than happy to give you the money. So that's the situation that Pat and I find ourselves in. It's, it's a bit more than a thousand, but um, you just concentrate on the people that are eager to get involved in you and your music. And you, if other people get jump on board, then that's great. Our social media followers and people has been has never stopped rising since we started doing this in the mid 2000s. So it's a whole different landscape. And if you want to consume your music via your phone or a record player or a CD player or going to a gig, that's what you, that's your choice. As the last two more questions, the first first one is I'm going to be putting you on the spot right now, uh-huh. and that question is, of other artists, what is your top five songs, just off the top of your mind, your five favorite songs from five to number one? What what are those songs and by which artists? I'm putting you on the spot though. <laughs> All right, five to number one. Um, yes. definitely Mountains by Prince from his Parade album. Yes. Um, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown Anything of Talking Book by Stevie Wonder What else would I be listening to? Um, I need to think of a ballad then, won't I? Um, I love Fix You by Coldplay It's a beautiful song love Yes, it. that is beautiful, yeah And, um, oh, High and Dry from the Benz Radiohead Brilliant. Brilliant five songs. Love it. As our podcast and our show is listened and viewed all around the world, what is your final message to our listening audience? The 57 million people that listen to all your podcasts. What a fabulous group of people. Putting it out there that they all will be. So (laughs) what's your final message to them? Well, just we need to learn to get on with each other better. And if we all try that, then I think the world will be a much better place. Love it. Perfect. This is Celeb Savant signing out with the brilliant Greg Crane from Hue and Cry. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks, Barrett.